Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. Please uh, take your scripture and open with me to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 33. I don't know if any of you know the comedian... Uh, Louis C.K., he, uh, he was recently uh, kind of rolled over the coals, if you will, last couple years, and he's kind of made a comeback as a comedian. But he was interviewed one time, and, and he said this, I have a lot of beliefs, and I live by none of them. That's just the way I am. They're just my beliefs. I like believing them. I like that part. They're my little believies. They make me feel good about who I am. But if they get in the way of a thing that I want, I just do what I want. What's your faith like? Are they your little believies? Things that make you feel good? That don't require much of you? They don't impact your life that much? Don't ask that much of you? If they get in your way, do you just do what you want? Think what you want? Go your own way? What's your faith like? Today in our text, Jesus is going to confront us with what true faith really looks like. So please look with me at Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. There, God's word says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when his disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, This is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. 
And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Father, as it has already been prayed, we ask you to impact us, change us, alter us by the preaching of your word today. Lord, your word is awesome, powerful. It holds a promise as it goes out to not return without accomplishing a purpose. We ask that you accomplish that purpose here, now, in these next moments. Change us. In Jesus' name, amen. My son bought a new video game a couple months ago, and as is our practice, we go down in, uh, in the little rec room that we have and where the video, video place is, and um, we kind of watch it to make sure that it's appropriate. You know, we want to watch a little bit of this game and make sure it's not too graphic and too gory, things like that. So as I was watching this uh, game, I, I noticed that before he gets into the game, before he's allowed to play the game, he has to go into this like little practice session. And that's where you learn, I guess, not a video gamer, how, which buttons do what and how the character moves and how it reacts. And so you get this little practice session, practice at the basics of the game, if you will gives you a taste of what the basics of the game require. In a way, that's what's going on in our text this morning. Jesus has set up this scenario. He's ordained this scenario to train his disciples once again. To give them a taste of what following Jesus really looks like. As we glance back at our time in Matthew so far, we see that that he's done this repeatedly, hasn't he? That's, that's the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's teaching them about what the kingdom of God looks like. We look back and we see that he's, he's taught them about the cost of discipleship, what it's going to cost them to follow him. We look back again and we see that he sent them out two by two, if you remember, to give them a taste of this ministry on their own and then brought them back. And quite literally, if you glance back at the preceding uh, pericope, the section that we just looked at last week, you see that he has been training them there to participate. They participated in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. If you remember, he broke the bread, he gave thanks, broke the bread, and then gave it to his disciples to hand out to the people. Now, we don't know how that miracle actually transpired. God's word does not tell us that if it was Jesus doing the multiplying and it just kept breaking and breaking, or possibly as the disciples were breaking the bread and it was multiplying. Either way, we know that they, they gathered five or twelve laundry baskets full of bread, so they saw and, under, and, and at least saw the miracle. And here he's going to train them again. He's training his disciples on what true faith really is. What is true faith? And in verses 22 through 27, we see that true faith has an object. True faith has an object. There's a very hackneyed old sales manager's technique of encouraging his sales reps by holding up 
a piece of paper with a dot on it, an orange dot, and saying, asking them, what do you see? So I ask you, what do you see? You see the orange dot. That's what everybody says. That's what most people say anyway, unless you've been in one of these meetings. The manager tells them that that is their weakness. They're limiting themselves by only seeing the spot and not seeing the opportunity of the white space. And in a way, that's the problem. That's, that's what the disciples are doing. They're looking at the orange spot. In Mark's telling of this narrative, it doesn't tell the Peter getting out of the boat part. It just ends with him getting in the boat and it, it ends like this. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand the lesson of the loaves. And their hearts were hardened. Isn't that interesting? Mark is telling us that they didn't understand the lesson of the loaves and that their hearts were hardened. Not hardened in the way that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, in resistance to God. More like the bottom of an elephant's foot where it just gets calloused. It gets, they, they, they can't see beyond the political Messiah that they've come to understand over centuries and centuries. This Messiah is going to come and he is going to be the physical Savior of Israel. They can't get beyond that. That's why Mark says they didn't understand the lesson of the loaves. If you remember from last week, the lesson of the loaves, he, he feeds 20,000 men, women, and children, upwards of that number, in the wilderness, in a desolate place with the people of God surrounding him. That picture of God feeding his people in the wilderness, the lesson of the loaves, Jesus is God. But the people and the disciples continue to believe that he is going to be their physical Messiah, their physical Savior, their political Savior, the one who is going to free them from the Romans, the one who's going to bring the glory of Israel back. I mean, if you know, if you know your scripture, you know that, that they went back and forth on this all the way up until the ascension, right? Even at the ascension, Jesus is getting ready to leave earth, like bodily go up into the clouds. And do you remember their question? Is it now that you're going to restore Israel? They can't get past the orange dot. They, they, they don't understand the lesson of the loaves. And so here Jesus is going to teach them again about the object of their faith. He's setting up another clear lesson on who he is. So he sends his disciples away. Immediately, it says. Mark likes to use that word, but here Matthew picks up on it. Immediately he sends them away. I mean, if you know the, the context, the fuller context of the story, you know that in John, the people wanted to make him king. Again, this political Messiah, save us. And I'm sure the disciples were getting whipped up into that. So he got them into the boat and sent them on. Go ahead. He sends them out onto the water and he goes up on the mountain and prays and a storm whips up on the Sea of Galilee. The wind starts blowing. 
In Mark's account, it says that the disciples were straining at the oars for 9 to 12 hours to the third, fourth watch of the night between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They were straining trying to get to the destination or probably at that point trying, just trying to get back to land. I mean, forget where Jesus wants us to go. We're, we're in survival mode. And Jesus waits until the fourth watch. He knows what he's doing. And then he comes to them walking on the water. And after he comes to them, verse 32 says, he gets in the boat and what happens? The wind stops. The storm is gone. They're safe. Why would Jesus orchestrate this? It wasn't as if, it, you know, our life kind of unfolds before us, right? Jesus knew exactly what he was doing here. Why would Jesus do this? What's the point of this miracle? What possibly could he want his disciples to gain from this? Well, let's think about this together. Where have we seen the people of God sent out into trouble before? Where else have we seen the people of God unable to make any progress because of water? Where else have we seen the people of God in the wilderness threatened by sea? Where else have we seen God making a way through water? He's obviously painting this picture very precisely, sculpting this clay perfectly so that they can see that he is the God of the Exodus. He is the God who parted the Red Sea. It's him. He's making this point again because they did not understand the lesson of the loaves. I am the object of your faith. And if that wasn't enough, just look down at verse 27. You see there that the disciples are terrified and they think he's a ghost. And what does he say to them? These words, these words should be very familiar to you. Take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. We just read from Isaiah 43, one of the many, many, many times. He says, don't be afraid. Take courage. I've got you. And if that isn't enough, the literal translation of this from the Greek is, take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. That's what they heard. I am. The very name of God that, that he gave Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, who sent you? I am. So, so ingrained in, in the in the minds of the people that, that John was inspired to sculpt his whole gospel around the seven I am's, right? Seven times declaring, I am God. I am the vine. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light. I am the resurrection and the life. I am God. I am God. I am God. And here Jesus wants them and us, brothers and sisters, to see him as the God who comes to save his people. He's the God who comes to save you. 
Not the way the disciples and the people want or even expect through political and physical means. That's why they didn't understand the, lo- the miracle of the loaves. They think, as many do today, brothers and sisters, as many do today, and we swim in these waters, that politics, the political politics is the answer. Just as an aside, the level at which you get angry and frustrated with the political, where we are politically, you might want to think, is there a little bit of idolatry going on there? Am I putting my faith, my hope, somewhere where I shouldn't? Aside, gone. Jesus came to save them and us from not, not the Romans, but a much deeper, deeper, deeper issue. Much more serious problem. See, we are guilty of looking at orange dots as well. Many think that their main problem, as I've just said, is politics. And so we look to a savior in politics. That's an orange dot. Or maybe psychological. So our object of salvation is therapy. Or we think our problem is monetary. So the object of salvation is the dollar bill. We all have our orange dots that we look at besides Christ. But Jesus is teaching here that if you're looking for salvation in anything else but him, you're missing it entirely. You're looking at this little dot when he's the rest of the paper. Because the real problem that we have is sin. That's the big problem. That's the unavoidable, eventual problem. And that's the problem that Jesus came to solve. We can borrow from the metaphor maybe a little bit more and say that we, the collective human race, have our backs up against the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is bearing down. That's where we live. Naturally. That's, what, that's the situation that we're born into. Scripture tells us that we are all sinful, that we like sheep have gone astray, that, that Psalm 51, from birth, and that the penalty for that sin that we have naturally is death. In other words, eventually the Roman army will come and you will die. And the Bible also teaches that there's nothing we can do about that situation. We cannot be good enough to get out of that situation. We cannot be wily enough to get out of that situation. We cannot be nice enough to get out of that situation. We cannot give enough of our time or money or effort. We cannot work our way back into good graces. Why? 
Because God's standard in Scripture is perfection. From Genesis to Revelation, perfection. Now, if you can be perfect, you can make it on your own. So we, like the Jews, are trapped between the army of death coming at us and the Red Sea. But God, in his amazing mercy, unending grace, sent his son Jesus into that situation. And he lived the perfect life that we cannot. That's why it's so important that we believe that Jesus is sinless. He attained God's standard. And he became an acceptable then sacrifice. And that's why he went to the cross. That's what made it possible for him to go to the cross. Because he was an acceptable sacrifice for God. And that's what he did for us. He willingly laid down and allowed himself to be crucified, allowed himself to be stabbed through his hands, his feet, his side, allowed himself to die an agonizing death in our place. And he was raised three days later from the dead, conquering death, if you will, parting the Red Sea. So that we have a way to get from this life to the next life. And scripture tells us that if you place your faith in Jesus, if you trust him, as we just heard, the Red Sea opens behind you and you're saved. Jesus is the only object that will do that for you. Nothing else. No other orange dots. Only Jesus. There's a second lesson that Jesus wants to teach his disciples, and that is the nature of of faith as well. The nature of faith. This we see in verses 28 through 32. And we see there, first of all, that faith is action-based. Faith is action-based. We have the object of our faith, but faith needs to have action behind it. Here we have the disciples' first feeble attempt at this faith, at trusting Jesus. Peter, we see here, does something absolutely astounding. I mean, really, just pause there for a moment and just think of the situation, really. I mean, some of us are going to be going out on the water in a few minutes, sailing, and imagine just being able to step down and the water supporting you. He asks for a pretty amazing thing. He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. Command me to come and walk on the water. It's very similar, if we can think of it in these terms, of a person giving their life to Christ. That's kind of what we do. We get out and we... we We put our foot down on something we're not sure will support us, but it does. And he gets out and he stands on the water. 
And he walks towards Jesus. You see, faith doesn't just have an object. You can't just have an object of faith. Faith necessarily requires action. Faith has to have action or it's not faith. You can't just have your little believies, like Louis C.K. says, that comfort you. Authentic faith is action-based. All the New Testament writers agree. I mean, Jesus' brother, James, wrote that, that epistle in, towards the back of your Bible, and he says probably the, the boldest statement on, on this. Faith without works is dead. It's no faith at all. You know, he says, you show me your faith by what you believe. I'll show you my faith by, by what I do. Faith has to have action. One of the early church fathers, Osimenius, wrote this, take note of what spiritual understanding really is. It is not enough to believe in a purely intellectual sense. There has to be some practical application to this belief. Brothers and sisters, your faith just can't be intellectual. <laughs> you can't say, as it says in James, I have, I, I'll show you my faith by what I think. No. Practical application. That's what John's epistle writes. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. A.W. Tozer, picking up on this, says, Millions of professed believers talk as if Jesus were real and act as if he were not. Our actual position is always to be discovered by the way we act, not the way we talk. You know, it's, again, this is hackneyed too, but, but people, the, the world should be able to convict you of being a Christian in a court of law. And, it, and, and that requires some action. I, I saw them doing this. I heard them saying this. Paul wrote to the Galatians, faith expresses itself how? In words. No, in love. Action. Faith with no action is no faith at all. It's kind of like a calculator. Remember those old things we used to have, calculators? We do have them on our iPhones. I use it. I have every faith in a calculator's ability to solve a math problem. I mean, sometimes with my younger kids, we do these things where you take these huge, you know, 10,450,000 divided by 346,000, you know. And until you hit that equal thing, you don't know what the answer is. You actually have to put that in. I can have faith that the calculator would do it, but until you put the numbers, until you hit those buttons. That's what it's like when you give your life to Christ. You might know the, 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 the gospel, but until you put that into effect and you actually... You know, the Bible talks about Jesus being our Savior and Lord. It actually puts it the other way. Lord and Savior, right? Savior, we all love that. 
He's our my Savior. And I love that too. But He's also our Lord. That means He requires actions. Obedience. Doesn't save us, but it is the evidence that it's true. Until you put your faith into action and trust Him. Until you, like Peter, say, Lord, if it is you. It's no faith at all. Faith is action-based. Secondly, we see that faith is bold. We see that in Peter and spades. That's just kind of who he is. It's probably why Jesus said, on this rock, I'll, I'll begin to build my church. It says who, he knew who Jesus was. Faith is bold. It's a bold thing that, that Peter asks. When Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached this text, he thought Peter's request was out of line. Isn't that interesting? He writes he shouldn't have even made that request, saying, quote, What did Peter want to do with walking on water? Far be it for me to disagree with the prince of preachers, but I do. I disagree with him. I don't see any rebuke by Jesus here. I think Jesus is pleased with his bold request. Oh, Peter, you're asking for the impossible? Guess who can do that? I think he's pleased when we make bold requests too. I do. Jesus is pleased when we ask of him bold, bold things. The 18th century pioneer missionary William Carey said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. I think scripture backs that up. The wonderful doxology in Ephesians 3, now to him who is able to do what? Far more abundantly than all we can ask or even imagine. I mean, I think that verse is also saying, you know, we think we're asking for bold things. Gosh, there's a lot more runway there than you think. There's a legendary story of a man who asked Alexander the Great to give him a huge sum of money in exchange for his daughter, the dowry. And Alexander agreed to this amazing amount of money. And Alexander's treasurer came to him and said, listen, that, we can get this for a lot less. Why don't you offer a smaller amount of money? To which Alexander said, no, let him have it all. He does me honor. He treats me like the rich, generous king that I am. Do we treat God like the rich, generous king that he is? Are we afraid to ask great things from our God? I think sometimes we are afraid. I think I am afraid. Now, it doesn't mean that when we ask these great things of God that he always gives it to us. That is the health and wealth tripe. But when you ask for great things, you actually honor God. You're glorifying God. You're treating him like the king that he really is. And if they're in line 
with God's plan, he gives it. As the wise king and perfect king that he is. George Mueller is perhaps the best example of this. If you know of him or read about his life, he lived an incredibly bold faith. I mean, some of the things you read about him and you think, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I'd have a faith for that. He worked with D.L. Moody and preached for Charles Spurgeon and inspired Hudson Taylor in his missionary journey. He's best known for founding orphanages in England and supporting them through prayer alone. All he did was pray. He never asked for money. Never. He just made his requests known to God. And if you know the story of George George Mueller, if you have read of him, you know that God came through every time. He was never in need. The stories of his bold faith are just famous. I want to tell you of one. In 1877, Mueller was on board of a ship that was stalled right off here off Newfoundland in dense fog. Mueller was on his way in in, in the last 25 years of his life Mueller really traveled and preached an awful lot. And he was traveling and preaching. And he was on his way to a preaching engagement. And he was fogged in. And and he went to see the captain to to encourage him to keep going. And the captain said, just look around you, son. We're not going anywhere in this dense fog. So, So he convinced the captain to go down to the chart room with him and pray. When Mueller finished praying, the captain was about to pray. But Mueller put his hand on his shoulder and told him not to. And he said this. First of all, you don't believe he'll lift the fog. Secondly, I believe he already has. The captain walked across the room, opened the door, and the fog was gone. I think we're afraid to be like that. I don't know what the genesis is in my heart. I've been seeking that out this week. Maybe I think it'll hurt my faith. It'll affect my faith if he doesn't come through. Maybe that's you. Maybe maybe I don't think my God is actually the generous king that he really is. Maybe that's my problem. Maybe that's your problem. I don't know. Whatever the case may be, Peter shows us that true faith is bold. It asks for things. Big things. But Peter shows us another part. And this is why we love Peter. He shows us that true faith, true faith, actually falters at times, doesn't it? True faith falters. That's why we love Peter. Just think if we only had the Mueller's as examples. I know, I know. If we only had the Mueller's as examples, I'd be crushed. I love reading about George Mueller because it encourages me. But then I run to Peter and go, oh, that's me. I sink. Peter shows us the reality of our walk. Look at verse 30. When he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. 
Even true faith, authentic faith, real, spirit-filled, generated faith, falters this side of glory. We just have to know that, brothers and sisters. Not expect it, not lean into it, but we have to know the reality of it. And that's what Peter is showing us here. Here Peter looked at the circumstances around him finally, right? I mean, the famous preacher thing is don't take your eyes off Jesus. I mean, there's truth there. But he started looking around at the circumstances and he said, I can't do this. (laughs) Who did I think I was? You know, sometimes, I know there's some pastors in the room, sometimes we pastors look at a ministry and go, oh, you can't do this. Who do I think I am? I'm not prepared for this. What is it in your life? What do you look around and say, I can't do this? Maybe some of your mothers look at all the kids and go, I can't do this. Maybe some of you fathers look at your job and go, I can't do this. I don't know. But Peter looked around and he began to sink. He began to doubt. And that's our experience too. The nature of true faith is that it will always be sprinkled with doubt. This side of glory. R.O. Blackman is one of the most famous illustrators in the whole world. In his recent book, Letters to a Young Illustrator, he shares a series of letters that he wrote to a, a younger fellow illustrator. In one of the most poignant letters, Blackman addresses the reality of failure and he writes this. Preliminary drawings and sketches are often discouraging things, pale shadows of one's bold intentions. Seemingly nonsense, they're especially dispiriting for beginners. Speaking for myself, he writes, my trash bin is full of false starts and failed drawings. He concludes by saying this, sometimes I ask myself, is that what I did? And I consider myself an artist? Don't we as Christians sometimes look at what we do, our doubt, and we go, this is how I'm acting, and I consider myself a Christian? Here Peter is in the very presence of God incarnate, and he starts sinking. Could Peter really be a Christian and do that? He denied Christ three times. Can Peter, I did that? Can I really call myself a Christian? We see the waves and the wind sometimes and and it takes our, our, our focus off of the greatness of God and we focus on that one little thing and it crushes us. And then we look back and go, I consider myself a man of faith. We look at circumstances in our lives and the world and ask, where's God in all this? Does culture sometimes wash over you and you go, is there a God? Maybe you have more faith than I do. A tragedy explodes a life and we ask, is God really there? Is he real at all? A dream is dashed and we think if God allows this, what kind of God could he be? In truth, we're all like Peter. Probably more than, than some of us. 
want to really admit. We all look and see pale shadows of bold intentions. But listen to what Charles Spurgeon, and he is the Prince of Preachers, said. Peter was nearer to Jesus when he was sinking than when he was walking. Isn't that encouraging? There's the grace nugget in all this. True faith might falter, but it always leads to true confession. If you have true faith, it will always lead to true confession. Peter was sinking and in trouble, and that drives him to reach out to Jesus. To call out to Jesus, Lord, save me. True faith always recenters on Christ. That's the beauty of having the Spirit within us. He's always going to bring you back. Always, always, always. You ever go to those malls? We used to have malls. Remember malls? We used to go to the malls and you had those big orange, like, uh, Spiral charity bowls. You know, you put the pennies or the nickels, dimes, quarters. Some of you very generous people put quarters in. And they'd go round and round and round and round and round. You'd watch it and watch it. And it gets a little slow, slow, slow. And then, clink, goes down in. True faith always makes it and drops down. Back into Christ's waiting arms. Always does that. That's what true faith does. We might spiral around a little bit, ask questions, try to make it on our own, but true faith centers back on Christ. That's exactly what the the disciples are learning to do through Jesus' masterful teaching. If you remember back in, in, in Matthew 8, they were in another storm, weren't they? And Jesus gets in and the storm dies down immediately. Do you remember what they said back in chapter 8? What kind of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Who is this guy? Oh my goodness. Don't know. Here, six chapters later, what do they say? He gets in, the wind dies down. They're starting to get it. They worship him. And they say, you're the son of God. You're him. Though they are faltering... They're learning to trust Jesus. And that is our path to. That's what we do. That's why he sends us into storms, brothers and sisters. That's why he ordains storms in our life. So that we can learn to cry out to him. Author Walter Wagerin Jr. writes this, Faith is work. It is struggle. You must struggle with all your heart. And on the way, Christ will ambush you. I love how he says that. Hell, he will. Brothers and sisters, true faith knows that in storms, Jesus is praying for you. True faith knows that he will come to you. Maybe not immediately. Maybe not right after your prayer. He'll come to you. Maybe in the fourth watch of the night. But he'll come to you. True faith knows that he will climb into the boat with you and be with you through that storm. And brothers and sisters, eventually the storm will be over. 
true faith knows that Jesus will always ambush you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word and for the way that you have sculpted us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you will continue to do so, that you will help us to meditate on your word, to be challenged by it, and to follow it, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.